This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 3. Coming up on the show, we've got Escaping the Astral Realm, the Pegasus Project, and the Karmic Deities and their Threads of Fate. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. One very interesting show coming up, Ben. We're going to be going into the Theosophist's perceptions on this group of entities that basically move around to dictate fate. And sometimes it's almost like things happen for a reason, but those things happening are occurring because of entities that are sitting on the sidelines watching everything take place. They pull the strings? They pull the strings. They make sure that the karmic uh, relationships are all managed. They're kind of like project managers for the astral realm. And you can travel to oh, this God. astral realm. Right? <laughs> you can go to this place, and if you, but you can get stuck there. And if you're stuck there, you need to escape. And guess who gets stuck there? People that have out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, encounters with fae-like beings. You can actually escape, but it's very difficult to do. So, so. you're going to be talking about astral realm bureaucracy. <laughs> Just project managers. Nothing so crude or boring. Don't sending know. emails, filling in <laughs> spreadsheets. Wow. Right. Yeah. Can't wait for this one. Logistics, astral logistics. That's like <laughs> the really important part about it. Well, you might remember on the last Plus show on Friday, I did that story on the failure of counter-espionage in the United States. And we were looking at North Korea hacking Sony uh, and the film The Interview, which caused this big furor with Kim Jong-un. It was fun going through some of that uh, cyber espionage. And I came across uh, perhaps a fantastic follow-up to that uh, that was just released about a week ago by Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud, two French journalists and documentary filmmakers. It's called Pegasus. How a spy in your pocket threatens the end of privacy, dignity, and democracy. What is this talking about the idea that by carrying around a smartphone, you're essentially being monitored by big corporations? Is that the concept? Not by big corporations per se, although that does happen, but by states, uh, by your government. Right. By your king or your prince. Like 1984 kind of stuff. Yeah, watching every move, especially if you're a dissident, if you're criticising the state, if you're criticising the government. Oh, we're done, Ben. You can become a target for this software and there's no way around it. There's a certain sense of safety people have today with apps like Signal. They have end-to-end encryption. Encryption. Mm -hmm. Apple always advertises that they have all these security features. But with this Pegasus espionage software, it doesn't matter. It gets everything. It's reading your phone. It's getting your pictures. It's getting your rec- the recordings of your phone calls. It's getting live feeds of your camera. It's getting all your data, all your messages, absolutely everything. Your geolocation, everything is going to whoever's controlling the software. What? Absolutely everything. So let me go into this. Again, this book just dropped uh, about a week ago and Laurent Richard 
again, he's based in Paris, documentary filmmaker. He won the European Journalist of the Year Award back in 2018. And Sandrine Rigaud, the co-author, she's also an investigative journalist in France. And she's been the editor of this outfit they created called Forbidden Stories. And she's been the editor since 2019. Uh, Laurent Richard was the founder. But this is a small kind of nine-person team as of writing this book that essentially takes over from journalists across the world who are under threat, who have exposed something, who have become whistleblowers and are facing prison, are, are facing murder. Uh, are facing just disappearing off the face of the earth because of what they've uncovered. These guys, their mission is to come in and continue the story mm. and k- get the story out. Very brave. So they're, they're, they were deep into their third major project in just three years. This is back in, I think it was early 2020. And they were investigating the cartels in Mexico. This was the cartel project. And it was obviously the most, dangerous. the most dangerous they'd ever done. Uh, they still had a ton of work to do to get ready for publication. And they were developing leads on all these murderous drug gangs, on the chemicals that were being brought into Mexico to create fentanyl, how it was all being sourced from Asia. And they do this repeatedly. They always say it's sourced from Asia. It's from China. Yeah. It's not from Asia. Yeah. All the, that stuff comes from China. Uh, essentially, they are picking up on the, the threads left unfinished by these Mexican journalists who had been assassinated. All these journalists who are exposing this stuff wound up killed, so in comes Forbidden Stories to try and complete the job. But they were given this opportunity out of Germany to uncover this story that would be bigger than anything they'd ever seen before. Uh, They're invited to uh, go out and meet Two investigators, uh, technologists working for Amnesty International, I have this division called Security Lab. One of them is Claudio uh, Guarneri and uh, Don uh, O'Kale, uh, this Irish guy is the other one. And so they rent this flat in East Berlin and they'd basically been chosen. Forbidden Stories, this journalist outfit, and Amnesty International Security Lab had been chosen as the only two groups to get access to this document that at this stage they were just calling the list. Now, Lawrence says uh, Sandrine and, and he had been given the understanding that the data in this list would help them uncover the existence of an insidious surveillance system made possible by a private for-profit corporation that touched thousands of unsuspecting individuals on almost every continent on the planet. Now, obviously, they never reveal the source of this list. They have to keep his uh, identity, his or her identity secret because their, their life is at risk. And the data is a bit of a mystery to decode. So, this is essentially tens of thousands of phone numbers. I think they had up to 50,000 pieces of data on this from all over the world, along with timestamps. And only a handful of those numbers had been attached to actual names or identities on this list. Now, he said, what we did know was that each number represented a person whose cell phone had been selected for infection with the most potent cyber surveillance weapon on the market. It's a malware program, as I mentioned, called Pegasus. It's developed, marketed, and supplied to law enforcement. This is what they openly state it's for. It's for, you know, the 
the French police to track down terrorists. It's for uh, the Israelis to track terrorists, to track crime, to track the mob. And it's been, they've been selling it to crime enforcement agencies in over 40 countries around the world. And basically this, I guess this market is really controlled or was at the time by this Israeli tech company called NSO. They were considered the top dog in this realm. They had the best software. They had the most clients. They were making the most money. Are they a government company or a private sector company? Private, completely private company. Now, this software Pegasus was coveted by national security specialists around the world because it's state of the art. So if a country wants to catch the bad guys in the middle of a terrorist act or prevent it from happening, this software is a godsend. Because as I was describing, you can get everything, the communications as they happen, the geolocation, absolutely everything you do on your phone. The accelerometer information. All of that. The, the user has complete control of that. And you can completely take over the phone. Let me guess, can you implant stuff as well? Uh, I think so, but you don't really need to. You just need to monitor the communications. Uh, what they can do is, like I was saying, they can get communication before it's encrypted. And if an incoming communication is coming in that's encrypted, the software gets it after it's been decrypted by the phone. So decryption doesn't mean anything. You can have all the signal apps you want. You can have encrypted telegram and all that stuff. Doesn't matter. As long as it's open on the phone and you're reading it as the user, the controller can get it the as well. Hell? I mean, that is terrifying. That's the whole point of using end-to-end encryption. Somehow it's what on the very core of your device and is able to read that? Yeah. It can just get everything. So it also controls the microphones, even when the phone's off. So if... There's rumours that the CCP have had this kind of technology for years. Yeah, we've heard that for decades, that the the CCP could do that, the Chinese could do that. But it it can turn on cameras at will. Uh, So you asked me before the show, you're like, how do you get around this? And you throw your phone in the garbage. That's the only way to get around it. If you have a device, you are vulnerable to this software. And recently, when this story was coming about, again, this is early 2020, WhatsApp had filed a suit against NSO in Israel, claiming 1,400 of its users had been targeted by Pegasus in just a two-week period. Amnesty International had a lawsuit going against them as well. So they'd been in the in the press for a while, this company. People were realizing that it was being abused. And there were filings in courts in the US and France and Israel and Canada. And there'd been a bunch of journalists doing stories on this Pegasus software and this company, NSO. But it didn't matter. There were headlines in the press, but there was no impact. Nothing changed. Nobody seemed to take notice. Nothing was done. And that's why this leak they'd gotten, this fresh leak from this source was so enticing because these timestamps in the data went back almost five years, but they were also very recent. So Claudio, this cyber expert for Amnesty International, realized that some of these attacks were fresh, perhaps even ongoing right now. And Lawrence said that they were likely going to be investigating a crime in progress. And uh, Claudio and Don, his, his assistant, they had started this process of identifying who was attempting to spy on who, exactly when, exactly where. Are they saying it's a crime in progress because it's essentially warrantless um, searches? Is that what the the idea is? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're watching a criminal, 
who's about to let a bomb go off in a city, sure, I mean, that's legitimate um, crime-fighting use of yeah. the software. But if you're following a journalist who's just exposed a story of corruption in your government, that's a completely that's, different yeah. story. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that was emerging in this database. And this is what they had learned because they had started to piece together some of it. They saw phone numbers on the list that belonged to academics, human rights defenders, political dissidents, government officials, diplomats, businessmen, high-ranking military officers. They had found hundreds and hundreds of non-criminal, non-terrorist targets that had Pegasus infection, and they'd barely scratched the surface. So the breadth of this was just like mind-blowing because there's like 50,000 numbers and names on here. And the overwhelmingly largest category of people that were being targeted by this software on this leaked list was journalists. They'd already found 120 journalists who were being tracked every single move they make, every contact, every source, every email, every message being read by someone who's someone who's controlling this software. So what forbidden stories these journalists needed to do was come up with the hard evidence because this list was just a list of people who were potentially infected by this software. So what they needed to do was somehow match the numbers on the list with names, find those people, convince those people to hand their phones over. Yeah, for and, obviously an audit. Of some and, kind. and then the Amnesty International cyber security guys, Claudio and Don, they would use their software to analyze it and confirm 100% that it's infected. And then they would have these guys. This, And then they would be able to do the story. This would be a huge story, the biggest story of their lives. So I'll play some audio from The Guardian here that just summarizes what this software can do. Let's take a listen. With just a single text, it can bypass your phone's security and install spyware that grants complete access to your device. It can access every message you've ever sent. It can access every message you've ever received. It can access every photo, every video, every email. It can turn on your microphone. It can turn on the microphone even when you're not using a phone call and just record what you're doing in the room. It can turn on your camera. It can record what's on on your screen. It can access your GPS. It can monitor your location. And it can do all of this without you ever knowing. The spyware technology that makes this possible is called Pegasus. Pegasus is probably the most advanced piece of spyware ever developed. It is effectively the most invasive form of surveillance imaginable. Any idea that you had that aspects of your life could be kept private and on the mobile phone are wrong. So if you are someone who thinks that you're safe because you use WhatsApp, which is end-to-end encrypted, or you use Signal, it really is meaningless uh, once that Pegasus is on your phone. Pegasus can infect both iOS and Android while remaining virtually undetectable. This is the scary thing about it, is you never know that it was on your phone. What if you're using another operating system like uh, Graphene, for example? Well, this company's been around for a while and they were hacking Symbian, they were hacking BlackBerry. So something like Graphene, which is like a lockdown hardened version of Android, uh, I, I presume, I don't know enough about it, but I presume they would have hardening to try and stop this stuff. But it's no guarantee. 
It's no guarantee. And the company, for example, NSO, they would have all these uh, experts examining graphene to find holes. So then, but I heard there at the very beginning of that audio that he said with a single text, who can, so is the, the point of failure you? I mean, do you have to click on something? So in the early years, yes, it was like I explained on that last segment about the North Korean hackers. They obviously need a bit of social engineering. So they'll learn a lot about you if you're a target. And then they'll send a message uh, that's tailored to you with a link. So, for example, if I was hacking you, Aaron, I'd be like... Don't say camel porn. I know where you're going. (laughs) No, I would just say, hey, check out this story I found on Bigfoot or something. This is crazy. Check it out. And then you would click on the link. I would disguise it as a YouTube link or something. And the chances of, of you clicking on it are very high. So, that was the old days. But as we're about to find out, they became more and more sophisticated. And they're able to supply their clients, which again are states and bad actors across the world, the ability to do what's called zero-click exploits, which is where, say, for example, your phone gets a signal from a tower that they're controlling, that they've hacked in some way, that just gets its signal, you're hacked. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you're gone. Uh, Or you can just, in general, just browsing the web, uh, if you hit a site without clicking anything. uh, Like one guy... They did some redirect somehow where if he'd searched on Yahoo, if he just went to Yahoo, he would get infected. I don't know how they did it. But that's what they're called in the industry, zero-click exploits. And that's the idea. You don't have to do that kind of elaborate social engineering where you're sending these messages anymore. It's just kind of an instant ping and they've got you. So the journalists, when they're thinking about taking on this story, I mean, this company, it trumpets its ability to find anyone anywhere. And they've got clients of over... I think it's like 40 governments around the world in five continents who are paying this company a quarter of a billion dollars a year to do just that, to basically find anyone, find anywhere. We and, are living- and you're going to take them on? <laughs> yeah, we're living in a dystopian future. This is horrific. Look, I get the whole thing against um, terrorism, obviously, but that really has been exploited. And it's be, it, like what you pointed out there, this stuff is being pointed against journalists that are trying to bring the truth out. Yeah. You've got a lot of bad actors out yeah. there. Well, by the end of this first meeting, they all kind of realized it all clicked how dangerous this was and what they were getting themselves into. But Claudio, the the security or the cyber guy from Amnesty, he had all these rules, obviously, that they had to follow. So they all immediately had to buy new devices after that meeting. It's mm-hmm. like no SIM cards. You got to get a new device and a new SIM and you have to buy basically knew everything. So they had to get whole new laptops, whole new you know, iPads, whole new devices to work on the project, completely separate from their personal stuff. No iMessages, no signal messages, no WhatsApp calls, none of that. How do you communicate then? In person. Oh, okay. Right. So like you, you basically to, come completely offline. You have to have a meeting. Before you have a meeting, your phones your go phones in a box. Everything's in a different room, far, far away. And you just have to take take care of all these precautions. And that's what they did for, I think it was over a year and a half they were working on this. So the next day they meet up, uh, Claudio comes up with a test exercise and they've, they've got, they load up the list that they've got from this source. That's all the users potentially infected by this program. And Claudio runs a, a piece of software against um, Lawrence contact list in his phone and Sandrine's contact list because they want to see if anyone they have in their contacts is on on this list. It's a good place to start. And immediately they, they get a hit. Yeah. And it's an official in Turkey's foreign ministry. 
It's like, all right, yeah, that's interesting, but it's espionage. Like he's being spied on by someone else, not really, not really out of the ordinary. They run through it again. This is through Lawrence List. Bang, they get another hit. This one's a bit more interesting. This is a number for the most famous investigative reporter in Azerbaijan. Her name's uh, Khadija Ismailova. And she's been reporting on financial corruption in the country for over 15 years. She's won multiple international awards. And she's currently under house arrest in her country. Now, they had, Lauren had actually seen some of the spooks that follow her around because they've been following her around for a decade. They're like, you know, guys in leather jackets with crew cuts, big muscles. Like, they have this intimidation of her all the time. And when he went to visit her to work on a story, she basically told him, don't do anything in your hotel room that you don't want to see published on the internet because they're watching you all the time. But what was weird about this is the number that showed up on the list, the number he had in his contacts was her safe, secure number. It was the the device she uses that is hardened, that is never given to anyone that's not trustworthy, that is never used outside of secure, you know, in an environment, secure channels. This one was hacked. Everything on it is encrypted. Didn't matter. The software was on the phone. Now... NSO was reported to have licensed its spyware system to more than 40 countries, but Azerbaijan had never been on anybody's list. No one knew that the country was even using the software, that they even had it. And if they sold licenses to Azerbaijan, like Azerbaijan's up there with, you know, China, North Korea, Somalia, in terms of human rights oh, abuses. A terrible uh, human rights record. So once that was on the radar, it's like, how... How far is this software gone? Like, who are these guys selling it to? Is there any kind of watch on who's getting this this software? No, of course there isn't. Uh, so, security researchers first found evidence that uh, an iPhone was infected back in 2016, and this was a human rights activist in the UAE. This was uh, Ahmed Mansour. And when the story broke, because the, the journalist did a story on this, didn't do any, him any favors, favors this guy. Uh, Mansour lost his job, lost his passport, lost his car, lost his savings, and uh, was thrown in jail by the UAE security forces and uh, regularly beaten twice a week is the latest on that guy. Uh, currently serving a 10-year prison term for threatening the unity of the state. And this was kind of after, he, he just would have been better off if they just kept spying on him. But as soon as it was exposed, bang, he's in prison. So they realized this is going to be dangerous work to get to the bottom of this. And they were going to cross this company and cross these states in a big way and kind of expose them if they went through with this this story. And when they started to run it against Sandrine's contacts, a name came up that they were shocked to see. And then they really understood how dangerous this is. It was the main Mexican journalists they had been working with on their cartel project for the last three years. Oh. So they suddenly realized that someone had been watching our main contact. That means whoever that was had been reading our communications with him as well. So putting them in immense danger. We're already exposed. So they had to suddenly like get in contact with him. He had to change his phone. He has to contact his sources, tell them they're compromised. But what's the point if they can get your phone just by connecting to a tower? What's even the point? Yeah, I mean, that's what the the cyber guys say is like, yeah, you can get a new device, but if they want to, they'll just get you another time. They'll get you a week later. 
so whoever had done the targeting, they realized that, yeah, they would be be watched as well. Um, so they decided to do this story because obviously how could they turn it down? How could they not do this? This is, you know, a dream project for them. But they immediately know everything has to be top secret. Their team members can tell no one. You can't tell your wife. You can't tell your husband. You can't tell anyone. And they talk about through the book how difficult this was. Like Lawrence says he would come home and like he would allude to his wife what he was working about working on but before he would tell her anything he would put his phone and his iPad and his laptop in the freezer close the door like quickly say oh, it's top secret i can't really tell you and then take it out he's like it's it's an episode of paranoia paranoia that's what they would be dealing with as well and the magnitude of the job was huge 50,000 leads spread all across the world where do they start well they, they had to authenticate the data because, again, they had all this these numbers. They had to actually prove that it was real, prove that it was true, get the devices, read the devices, prove that the software was actually on there. Uh, but they had a good place to start because they'd been doing this cartel project in Mexico, Mexico. And Mexico happened to be one of the biggest users of this software. There were tons of Mexican phone numbers on there. So they, they went to work. They put as many of the names together as they could. They got their team members to buy like Mexican phone books and try and match the numbers up. Um, they made a sub database of all the Mexican journalists murdered after 2016, which was the closest they could match it up with the list. Um, and just started this way, going through all this information. And most of the book is about the the process, like the process of the skills required in the investigation, which yeah. is if you're a journalist and if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's really fascinating to go through. I was more just trying to pick out the highlights of what this software could do. That's what fascinated me. Uh, they ended up bringing on board Bastian Obermeyer to get involved with the project. This was the guy that was the initial contact for the Panama Papers back in 2015. What were they? I can't recall. Remember, that they, they came out in April of 2016 and it exposed, it was like 2.6 terabytes of data. It exposed all those offshore companies and hidden bank accounts in like Panama. Oh, yes. And the Bahamas uh-huh. and the Virgin Islands. Yeah, and, and money laundering. All those and, places. Yeah. And yeah, like political figures, billionaires, Putin and, and everyone of that kind of yeah, tax evasion. scope was involved in tax evasion, pilfering money from companies and countries. And uh, that was a huge thing because they ended up getting, I think it was because it was so much data, they had something like 100 journalists involved. And this guy helped organize it all. So they brought him involved in this project. They got him involved rather because they knew that eventually they were going to have to bring in other outlets. Like these are just nine people that are trying to get to the bottom of this story. But when it breaks, if they just publish it on their website, no one's going to see it. So they needed to bring in like the Washington Post and these German newspapers and French newspapers to make the story hit in a way that couldn't be ignored. Their goal was to time it so that all these outlets release this expose and their own versions of it at the same time around the world so it couldn't be ignored. This was their plan. And they hoped to publish in June of 2021. So they had their plan and and they go ahead. And the next day, once they've organized all this, Claudio's going through the list because they would just scan through this scroll. It's like a scroll of numbers and names. They're trying to piece it all together. 
And Sandrine's watching it as he's scrolling. It's kind of like she's watching the Matrix. And she says to Claudio, she's like, stop, stop. And he's like, okay. He goes back. And she says, uh, Laurent, take a look at this name. And he's like, what, what, what? He comes over and there's a name on the list that's infected or potentially infected with this Pegasus software, Emmanuel Macron. Macron? The president of France has this spy see, software on his phone. See, I wonder with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, and, and you and I have spoken about this, Ben, and I say, I wonder, and we know in, in old espionage that what was done is that you would get a diplomat in and you would put them into a hotel and you would send up a prostitute and you'd film them and then you'd use it to blackmail them, right? <laughs> the old honeypot. That's, that's the old way, the old honeypot. That's how they used to do it. Now all they do is they simply tap into your phone, yeah. film everything that you do, and then I've got no doubt that they'll use it for blackmail. And these two journalists are French as well. This is their president that's on the list. So this is huge. This is a huge piece of news, a huge, I guess, boon for the story, but it's also a big problem. And the reason it's a big problem is um, who's going to keep this hidden? Because they need to keep this hidden for about a year so that they can gather all the evidence so that the story actually sticks. But if anyone gets wind that Macron has spy software on his phone that's built by Israel, no one's going to sit on this story. And the French authorities are going to yeah. come after them, demand the source, demand the list. They're going to lose the story. So they can't do anything with this information. They have to keep it hidden. But the, the safety of an entire nation could be at risk because you don't know if there's some bad actor that's got a hold of this. Like it's a, I mean, maybe the state is monitoring him for some reason, but it's more likely that it's a foreign state. Yeah. And that's a huge problem. Yeah. So they had to make this decision. And Laurent quoted, he's quoted in the book as saying, this is when he realized the fearlessness that this software gives these actors. They can do whatever they want. They feel like they can hit whoever they want to hit. Because again, the software before these uh, guys, these cyber experts came along from Amnesty, before them is almost completely undetectable. What about a firewall? Can you run a firewall to um, stop outgoing communications? Is there all outgoing data streams? Is there a way to do well, that? Well, the firewall would be just turn off all your data <laughs> so yeah. nothing gets in or out. That would stop it. But obviously, you can't do that. You need to use your device. That's why I'm saying, like, if you want to truly be free of it, you've got to throw your phone in the garbage. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, yeah, the news of this being on Macron's phone, they couldn't get this out. Uh, it risked blowing their cover. It risked the life of their source as well if this got out because their source might be the only one who has a list that has Macron's name on it. And so let's let's talk about this company NSO. Uh, so the co-founder and CEO Charlev Julio, he likes to tell his version of the story because he's been interviewed by the press a few times. He claims he was uh, asleep on Christmas Eve, twenty eleven, when he got a personal call from the president of Mexico. Now he doesn't say in the interview that he did in twenty nineteen that it's the president of Mexico, but anyone can put the data together and realize that's, that's who it was. That's who it was at the time. Uh, the president, who was the president of Mexico back in 2011? Felipe Calderon. 
And the president basically said he wanted to thank Shalev Julio and the company on behalf of his country and that he couldn't have asked for a better Christmas present. With what you gave us, we can finally eradicate the cartels. And the story, this again, told to a journalist in 2019, this was like the classic way of this guy spinning stories. It's like a humble brag of epic proportion. And with the help of this company, NSO in Israel, the Mexican government, the Mexican military finally had a chance to bring to heel the violent and powerful drug czars that had been causing havoc in Mexico for, for decades. And the story of the call is impossible to check. The details of this interview he gave in 2019 is impossible to check. The NSO employees are muzzled. They're not allowed to talk to the press. No European police official was willing to go on record to talk about this. Uh, no one wants to talk about this Pegasus spyware. So this was one of the first interviews this guy gave and everyone just had to take his word for it. No one could check this data out. Now, the origin story is fascinating. So he and his pal Omri... They met in the mid-90s. They did their usual service. You have to do in the Israeli yeah, military, yeah. Uh, their compulsory service. And they stayed in touch afterwards after they did this. And one day while having drinks in Haifa in Israel, they had an idea for a business. And their business idea was clickable merchandise in television and movies. So if you were watching, say, Sex in the City, this was the prototype they built. You could watch Sex in the City. And if you liked Samantha's shoes or something, you would click on her shoes in the TV show and it would immediately take you to a store and you could buy them. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, interesting tech. That was their idea. It was a, yeah. pretty, a pretty good idea, but their timing was really horrible because it was right before the 2008 financial meltdown. They didn't get the funding they needed and the startup basically died. So after this, they moved on to a startup called Communitake where they helped scale a new software program created by a couple of their old uh, schoolmates. And one of their old schoolmates had been in Israeli's Unit 8200. This is the Israeli army, 8200. Uh -huh. Is and that unit, like a specialist group? It's like a cyber warfare unit. All right. And what they do is they pick the smartest kids in the country and they put them in their compulsory service and they put them straight into that unit. And this is why Israel is one of the world's leaders at anything tech, because it's like that old thing of, you know, the Jewish mother saying, you've got to be a doctor. Why aren't you a doctor? That's now, why aren't you in cyber warfare? <laughs> like, that's like, why aren't you in IT? That's honestly, it's completely replaced. Why aren't you a doctor? It's like, why aren't you in IT? That's, that's what it's become. Why aren't you a developer? And um, so they start this Communitake company. And the problem was at the time, this is back in 2009, right? People have uh, Android phones, they got iOS phones, and BlackBerry is still popular. But because smartphones are new to so many people, it's a little, it's changed now, obviously. But back then, people were just idiots with smartphones. They like, still are to a degree. Yeah, unless they were young and had grown up with technology like the way we did. But a lot of people that were using smartphones we just couldn't work things out. There were heaps of problems. The software was nowhere near as good. And these telecommunication companies found out that they had to hire reams upon reams of new support staff to answer all these questions about the software. Why isn't this working? How do I do this? How do I do that? And it was costing them a fortune. It was just astronomical amounts of 
money going to these support staff. So what this company started up by these Israeli kids, Communitech did, was they went to these telecommunication companies and they said, they said look, we're going to solve all this for you. We're going to give your support staff a way to directly control the user's smartphone. Right, okay. So if they're like, how, how do I yeah. change the background? I, I've worked in computer support and I would have loved that kind of technology. Yeah. And yeah. they said it was a win-win because now the support staff, the IT guys could go, okay, just uh, click on this app, download this app, and then I'll have control of your device and I'll show you how to change your background. And everyone loved it. It was a win-win. The company saved tons of money. The techs loved it because it was easy to fix problems. You didn't have to explain stuff. You just went in there and you fixed it. But then you could see everything inside someone's phone, right? Because you're essentially in their phone. Well, that's how you solve the problem. You, you get yeah, access in. to your phone. So once this company started to be hired by all the tele telecommunication companies in Israel, they start to get calls from European intelligence agencies. Of course they do. They get a call from like someone at Interpol or something who's like, uh, have you ever thought about using this for intelligence? You know, maybe we can sit down and have a discussion. And they kept on getting approached constantly by different agencies throughout Europe to use this software for intelligence gathering. And they went to the board that ran their company because they didn't have full control of it. They still had investors. And the board said no. The board wasn't interested. They didn't want to hire all these new people with new skills. It was a completely different market. But Shalev and uh, his co-founder, Omri, they couldn't let it go. And when they were approached several times by one agency with the question, can you do it without the user's permission? These guys lied. They said, yeah, of course we can do that. Now, what they didn't understand is that was the holy grail of the industry at the time. To be able to get this software on someone's phone without their permission, yeah, that was it. Like, that had, you know, the NSA and all these other agencies salivating at the idea. And these guys are just like, oh yeah, we can totally do that. <laughs> Not even knowing that it's the Holy Grail. So they end up getting $1.6 million of funding. They leave that old company that they'd founded. They start a whole new firm and they bring on board uh, Niv, this guy, Niv Kami, who used to work for um, Israeli army intelligence like he was their programmer they bring him on board and they call the company nso named after it's like the nsa yes but they just call it nso and it's the initials of the founders and they rent out a, an old chicken coop in israel it's like a factory chicken farm and they convert it into their high-tech offices but it's really just a chicken coop and it's all done on a lie to these intelligence agencies that oh no we can totally crack this problem of getting it onto someone's phone without their permission. And did these security agencies then hand over a heap of money? Is that how they were able yeah, to develop that? 1.6 million in funding. Now, this guy, Niv Kami, who was the developer, he left like after a few months. And he was interviewed later because he ended up coming out and saying, look, these two guys, you know, I was friends with them, but 
all they care about is money. But $1.6 million isn't a lot of money to get the software to that holy grail point. Like, well, they get- this is back in 2010. Oh, so okay. it's more money yeah. back then. And this, it's just, they don't need much costs. It's just the three of them just working banging away. Yeah. Uh, but he ended up leaving because he was worried about the implications of it. He was worried about the ethical implications. And so they were basically screwed. Uh, Shalev and Omri, they thought, this is another dead startup. Why did we leave our old company? We're screwed. But it just so happened, Shalev was in a, a cafe one day in Tel Aviv, and he overhears these young guys having a conversation. And they're bragging about a friend of theirs who's developed tech to hack cell phones. And again, you got to remember back then, most of the hacking thing was all about getting into people's computers, yeah. getting into hardware, like computer hardware, not phones. People weren't that worried about phones. But he overheard this conversation and he's immediately like, let me buy you a coffee. And he sits these kids down and convinces them to introduce him to their friend. And he he's never revealed who this guy is, never revealed the identity of this person. He just said he's a scrawny guy, plaid shirt, glasses, lots of pens, like that kind of person. Bill Gates, isn't it? I don't, well, I don't know who this person is. It makes me wonder, is this person real? Is this like connected to Mossad? Like, what's actually going on here? But apparently this scrawny hacker guy cracked it. And just the odds of this happening, like you're in a cafe one day and you overhear about the guy that can save your company and develop this thing that no one's ever developed before. Like, what is going on with that? Yeah, it's weird. But this ha- this happens and they managed to crack getting the software on your phone without you knowing and without your permission. And so this is the zero day, zero click yeah. idea. Well, this is still to the point where you need to send a message and click on it. Oh, okay. But... It's like it's a, a you don't have to approve anything after you click on it. Once you click on the link in the SMS, it's done. You're gone. Like your phone's gone. And this is what brings us to Mexico. Because at the time, Mexico was a gold mine for these companies. At the time, the president, the new president, Felipe Calderon, uh, he was five years into this ferocious battle with the drug cartels, and he had just ramped it up. 6,500 troops, that ramped up to 20,000 soldiers, more police, we're going to take them down. 7,000 Mexicans were killed in 2008 alone. This is when the US got involved with the cartels. They ended up giving the Mexicans $1.5 billion of aid, which left plenty of money left over for digital technology, like once you take care of guns and all that sort of stuff, you've got all this money left over. So NSO, the Israeli company run by these kids, they team up with this guy in Mexico. His name's Jose Susumo Azano Matsura. And he's a Japanese Mexican guy who acted as a middleman who can navigate the complex world of Mexican bribes and bureaucracy and red tape. And apparently this guy was wanted by law enforcement in the US and Mexico. He is suspected of bribery, money laundering, tax fraud, and drug trafficking. Perfect guy for the Mm, job. mm. Perfect guy for the job. He immediately goes out and lands them a $15 million contract with the Mexican government. And they're off. It's their first gig. $15 million. And... They meet this general in Mexico City and he talks about Mexico setting up this new branch of the military, using this software to tackle the the drug issue and how they're going to use this tech to fight crime, to fight fight drugs. It's going to solve the country's problems. 
And to this day, like Shalev Julio says he sleeps very well, that their software is saving lives, that it's helping oh, that stop old these... that argument that it's saving lives. It's helping stop these criminals. And this is where it gets interesting because they spoke to an insider, the journalists, and they said, like, this was someone who worked for NSO years later and said, look, we're a big company now. We make enough money. So if, say, uh, Iran comes to us and wants to use this software, we can just say no way. No, we can say no. We've got enough money to say no. But this NSO employee said, if you're a small company, if you're just starting and you're struggling to pay your employees and someone comes to you and says, here's $100 million, look the other way, I want your software, you don't think about human rights. And he just goes, that's the reality of the situation. Now, this comment gave them an insight to what was going on in the cyber surveillance market. Because at the time, before NSO kind of came on the scene and started getting these contracts in Mexico, there was a hacking team, a company called Hacking Team that was out of Italy, based in Italy, run by this CEO, David uh, Vincenzetti. And these guys dominated the market for 10 years. They were the alphas in the world, world of cyber surveillance. And they had clients from all over the world, Europe, Africa, the Middle East. They sold uh, their software to the FBI, the Department of Defense, the DEA. The NSA, no doubt. No, well, the NSA doesn't touch any of this stuff because they just have their own stuff. Well, but you have to wonder because we were only recently on that Plus show talking about that, uh, you know, armory of tools, cyber tools that they have. But you have to wonder if they hear something like this, even though they have their own tools, if this guy is the first guy to crack this, of course they're going to have it and probably manipulate it for their own means. Well, here's the weird thing about the Pegasus software. And many of you listening will probably enjoy hearing this. Pegasus has always maintained that they build into their software a block that stops it from tapping into any US phone number. If what about you, Australian phone numbers? <laughs> no, Australia's not in there. But if, right. if you've got a plus one in your phone number, the software by design cannot infect you. I do not believe that for one second. Well, this is, well, Israel's a... Uh, I know they're an ally. An but- ally of the United States. And the, I think I do believe this because if the US finds out that their phones are being attacked, they're citizens are being attacked and their government is being attacked by Israeli-built spyware. You don't believe that the US government, especially the absolute shitstorm of an administration they have at the moment, would not exploit that? What do you mean? You don't think that they would take that software from an ally and then turn it against their own citizens? But that's my point. The NSA doesn't need it. They already have it. This has been exposed by Snowden. Yeah. We know that they have these tools already. They don't need this software. It's more Israel going, don't worry, we got you. We're not gonna, you're not going to be touched by this, but we're happy to sell it to you know anyone else. So Australians, we're, who knows how this is being used here? Again, you can't detect it. So this company, Hacking Team, had been running the show for years. And along comes this Israeli startup, appears out of nowhere, starts inking $15 million deals, $24 million deals. And this CEO from Italy is like, what the hell's going on? Who are these guys? What is going on? He saw them sign this massive deal with the United Arab Emirates in 2013. The Emiratis were paying like five times the amount the Mexicans were playing. So this guy starts to scramble. He's like, these guys are taking over. He goes to the Saudis and he says to Saudi Arabia, why don't you buy my company? And the Saudis seriously consider buying this Italian hacking company. They go through months of talks, but ultimately the talks 
fall down and the Saudis make a deal with NSO and Israel. So they just start stealing all their business. And then in 2014, NSO in Israel signs another massive deal for $27 million with Mexico. And by this time, Vincenzetti, this Italian CEO, is like, what is going on? He's blowing up. He starts... um, you know, screaming at his team, we've got to fix this, we've got to take out these guys, they must be lying, I don't trust them, they're from Israel, (laughs) he's just going off on these guys. But the final blow that ended this Italian company was this message that was posted on their company Twitter account in July of 2015, and their account had been hacked. The hacker posted, since we have nothing to hide, we're publishing our emails, files, and all source code today. Oh. Oh. This. Wow. So, this is like the world's leading hacking company. They've just been hacked. Their Twitter's just been hacked. Yeah, there it goes. This was a hijack two months in the making. This very patient and cautious hacker, he calls himself Phineas Fisher, would eventually take credit, and he published a technical explanation of how he found the vulnerability in their system. It was through a backdoor in their internal network that he he found a way in. And he basically sat on their network for months, like sniffing packets of information, looking at their webcams, watching how one of their system admins would play World of Warcraft all day and he'd just watch him. Ultimately, he discovered an underprotected server that had the company's backups on it and backups from the executives. And they weren't encrypted? Nope. And in the backups, he got the password and he got the admin password to basically everything. He got all the company's emails. He got their Twitter account, all their social media, absolutely everything. And he downloaded all these backups to his hard drive. The day after he hacked their Twitter account, he dumped it all. 400 gigs of internal emails, memos, documents, their source code, everything And this exposed this Italian CEO as just having no scruples at all. He was, there were emails where he's like, who cares if the king of Morocco is killing people? He's a great guy. Let's like sell them, let's sell them the software. What are we worried about? You know, really just not caring, no morals at all, not caring who was being targeted with their software. And the leak also revealed that many of the crew were worried about some of their some of their software. They were worried about some of their firewalls that need to be updated. There were emails going to the CEO saying, you know, we need to update this update. He's like, don't worry about it. We need to focus on NSO. We need to take them down. And there was a two-year-long criminal investigation because it ultimately destroyed this company. And they could never reveal who this Phineas Fisher was. Who was this hacker? It's never been revealed who he was. But investigators did find out how the hacker got inside. They found out what the weak point was that allowed him in. And what was it? It was the company's outdated firewall and VPN system. Mm. Now, the investigators realized the only the only reason they were still running this outdated software is because there was one guy in the company that was still using it. Because imagine that, you this massive company like the cybersecurity security masters of the world. But there's one guy in the company who's like, nah, I don't want to use that new version. I don't like it. And that one guy was the CEO. Oh, my. Oh. 
Oh, just the just the level of it's such obvious incompetence, you know, in hindsight, isn't it? The entire company was taken down because the CEO literally well, you know couldn't be bothered to install a software update. In light of what I've been reading today, it's almost like he had it karmically coming. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't. He was okay with people dying in Morocco using his software. And he, he was the reason the whole thing went down. So once they were gone, NSO just started hoovering up all the money, all the contracts around the world. They took all that business that Hacker Team lost because no one wants to do business with a cybersecurity company that's getting hacked themselves. And the, the Forbidden Stories team that was working on this, they managed to get data from this guy who has the alias Jose. And this is an interesting part of the story because this guy was one of the Mexican uh, law enforcement people, one of the military guys who was the first to train to be trained to use this software in Mexico to watch the cartels. And he, they started talking about El Chapo. You know, El Chapo at the time, back in 2008, he was running, like, I can't remember the name of the cartel, but it's the biggest, most dangerous, most successful cartel in Mexico at the time. Mm-hmm. Is it Sinaloa? Is it Sinaloa cartel? Oh, I can't recall. But just to, off the top of my head, I was only reading the other day about um, who was the guy that had all the hippos? Escobar, Pablo Escobar. Right. I was reading the other day that he was making something like, I think it was 460, 420, I don't know, million dollars a week. Yeah, yeah. A week. Yeah, yeah. And that's what these guys are making in Mexico as well. And this is why it's like life is irrelevant and you're know, just the, the massive amount of money that's going through. Well, he was about to cross a billion dollars net worth back in 2008. And this is how smart this guy was. He was like, all right, we need a, an IT whiz kid in here to set up our whole operation. And that's what they did. They hired this uh, young guy and he built like the cartel has their own internet. So they don't use outside internet. They have their own high-speed connection that Mm -hmm. they use. And it's dedicated to their lieutenants. He made sure that all calls are routed through a proprietary central server. It's never exposed to the outside. So it's almost got like they've got their own walkie-talkies, but it uses like their own cell phone towers. Um, And El Chapo asked this guy to, once he'd done that, get him software that would allow him to spy on his employees. Quite smartly so about it. Essentially, he was using something like Pegasus to run his drug empire. And uh, they ended up installing spyware on all the internet cafes in the city where they operated. So any local that was talking about the cartel, this data would be picked up by the cartel. So it could analyze keywords or something. Yeah, they, they, would, find, like they would find everything. So this uh, Mexican military guy, he described how they had to use the social engineering. They had to send text messages to the cartel and try and get them to click on the link. He said the one that would work nine times out of 10 was porn. Yeah. Like he would say, big boobers, big hot Spanish boobers. (laughs) And the cartel guys would be like, oh, click on it, boom, you're in their phone. And that worked nine times out of 10. And this guy describes what you would see once you get a phone. And once it's up and running, he describes his screen, right? And you've got all these little windows and each window 
is anything you want on the phone. So there's like a little window of text messages. There's a little window of WhatsApp. There's a window of Google Maps. You can open up that up. You can tell when things are being read. You've got a live stream of what's actually happening on the screen. He says he's got icons, like there's a little camera icon. You click on it, it opens the camera. So just imagine like a very modern UI. You're not sitting in front of lines yeah, of code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're seeing it as in You're just clicking directly. on links on this little UI software that you've got to have total control over everything that the user is doing. And this guy was incredibly proud of the work they did to take out this crime syndicate to essentially put a dent in what the cartel was doing. But I found he said something very poignant in this book. And uh, he, he spoke about this software as a kind of cyber devil. That's what he called it. And he says it's because in Pegasus, this software, the human factor plays a key role. He said, look, we knew it was invasive. It was in the lives of the targets. But we knew we couldn't give in to temptation. But he said this type of tool, it's attractive. He said there's a certain morbid curiosity to get into people's lives. These kinds of tools generate in public servants who have them within their reach a feeling of supremacy a feeling of power and control, and its use becomes perverse. He said it can become a means of personal satisfaction and not for the benefit of the public interest. We know absolutely that it happens because here in Australia, we had a QR code system for um, contact tracing when the COVID pandemic was going on. And as much as the uh, Australian policing authorities had said that they would not use it to track people, they absolutely did. It's been proven. They used it for police investigations to yeah. track where people are. Yeah. It's just too they tempting. They don't care. And this is the whole point with this software is, yeah, you can catch the bad guys, but it's it's so dangerous. Well, now it, we're living in a surveillance state. Especially with the way that the world is going, the way that uh, morals, the way that people think about governance, it, yep. the way it's evolving in the world. I don't think any state, no matter how... Uh, I guess, libertarian, mm-hmm. they approach their governing, would be able to resist this kind of power. I think you're right. But the good news is, is I feel like with the pandemic and, and what's happened over the last three years, that a lot of people, a lot of people are starting to wake up. Even I've been guilty of saying this in the past. Of oh, I remember years ago, I was actually thinking about it today. I remember years ago, we covered a story about how Google was uh, reading people's emails for keywords so it could sell advertising to them. Mm. And I remember myself saying, oh, well, who cares? Because... You know, I, I don't have anything to hide, right? And I think that's what a lot of people, that's the argument you used to hear a lot of people saying. Today, while I still have nothing to hide, I don't want the government reading my emails. I don't want big corporations getting into my stuff. And I realize after the pandemic that I think a lot of people are going, oh, right now, if you have an opinion which goes against the mainstream or, or the current thing, you'll be harassed, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be... And so now a lot of people, because it's... And it's not just one thing, right? It's like, unless you follow everything precisely to the current thing, which people don't do, you're at risk. Well, look at, look at how close we came in this country for it, be, for it to be illegal not to get vaccinated. It was very, very close. close. And it, it, it happened in some countries in Europe. You know, you weren't, be, you weren't able to shop for groceries unless you made that choice. And we and, all know how that turned out. It, it doesn't take much. I mean, this software is used to catch criminals, but name name anyone in the world who can go a couple of weeks without breaking some law. There's so many laws compounded upon each other that y- you can't avoid breaking the law. This is the way the system is kind of set up. There's so much bureaucracy. There's so many um, regulations that 
And contradictory you, regulations as well. You inevitably are going to cross them. You're inevitably going to break some law. And if if that's all the excuse they need to watch you and monitor you and get in your life and control you, then it's, yeah, it's a really dangerous thing to think about. It's a scary thing to think about. But the way the Amnesty guys ended up cracking this, the way they kind of track it on people's phones, the way they uncover it, is they started to get the devices from people that were on the list and they started to analyze them. And they found some of these messages that were saying, hey, check out this hot porn, click on this link. And they realized this is what this was probably Pegasus. And when they analyzed the link, they discovered that it was painstakingly engineered to hide any information about the attack. Any identity of the attacker was hidden. And the link and the final server that you would get sent to were configured in a very strange lockdown manner. Like there was no 404 pages. There was nothing to alert the user that anything was off. Uh, And the encryption algorithm on the server was different to any other server they had seen on the internet. So this is what these guys did. They, They used this as a kind of fingerprint and they ran a scan in the summer of 2018. I don't know how long this takes of every server on the internet. How can you possibly do that? Right. Well, Google does it every day. There must be a way to do it. They just ran this. I, I'm sure it takes longer than a couple of hours to run this Surely. This thing, right? They found 600 discrete matching servers acting as launch pads for these spyware attacks. So there's 600 client servers run by NSO around the world that if you just stumble upon, if you get directed to, you're infected. and they they found a victim through this. They found a, a couple of victims through this. One of them was a um, Yaha Asiri, who was a former officer in the Royal Saudi Air Force. He had been a thorn in the side of the Saudi royal family. He had started to um, essentially point out some of their human rights abuses, some of the problems going on in what the country. What was this guy's name again? Uh, Yahwa Asiri. Oh, okay. Not- I was wondering if it was Khashoggi. No, not the guy that got chopped up into little pieces. You know, according to this, he was monitored by the software. He'll come into the story in a moment. Right. Yeah, he's really into it. Keep reading on him because I, I want to mention him in a moment. But basically, this guy uh, fled the country, but he was still running like almost a human rights activist network within Saudi Arabia. He was infected. His entire network was compromised. They would had been in his phone for weeks. And it, it's interesting watching or reading about some of the responses these guys have when they discover that they've been, I guess, watched for so long. Like one of them was a Hungarian journalist. His name was Sabolks Panyi, and he covers Hungarian national security, foreign affairs. He's been this journalist for like 20 years or something. And recently he'd been writing a lot about uh, hung- the Hungarian government Orban's government getting involved with China. Mm-hmm. And China's been doing all these big building projects in, in Hungary. A lot of money. And there's been a lot of criticism because there's obviously corruption and, you know, Orban's pals are getting the contracts and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, he was on the list. And Laurent Richard describes watching his face on the conferencing call when they're explaining to him, oh, no, no, they've been in your phone for probably a year and they get everything. He's like, what you mean? They listen to my phone calls. Oh, no, no. They get anything you see on, on your phone, they have. And they said it, it, he's, it looked like his head was going to explode. Like it was just going through his mind, all his sources, 
because he's got sources in the government. Of course. They're now all in danger. He's got all these activists giving him information. They're now all in danger. And this is what he said, because his parents had been brought up in the communist dictatorship in in Hungary, and he had actually grown up in it as well. Um, that They had always talked to him about freedom and privacy and how important it was. And he never took these protections that he had in Hungary today for granted, but he said he neither fully appreciated the grim fatalism that the older members of his family couldn't seem to shake off. And this is what he said. Listen to what he said. He said, these are exactly the methods that my parents experienced when they were living in socialist Hungary. The methods that were used against me in the surveillance, this was really reminiscent of the communist times. It was like being in a time machine, going back to my early youth, experiencing something that was going on in the 1980s. And he noticed that on this list, there was like Hungarian mobsters, known criminals, like all sorts of people. But there was also him and all these journalists and a bunch of like economists. Economists? Yeah, like this is the Because they're trying to control the economy? Yeah, well, this is the type of people that get on this list. If you say, well, house prices are going to drop in Australia in the next 12 months. If the government doesn't want that information getting to too many people, they might be watching who you're talking to. Yeah. It's kind of scary, this stuff. Uh, later, we learned that the NSO hackers in Israel, as they kept developing their software, again, they had these zero-day exploits. So, they could get in through Apple Photos. Um, there was just some... I don't even know how they did it, but there was just a backdoor they found. So, if you had Apple Photos on your phone, who doesn't have that? Yeah. They're in. Well, according to CNET, the way that Pegasus got into uh, iOS was through something known as, I think it was forced entry as a program or something they called forced entry. And they used that to access, I think it was iOS 14, something 14.8, somewhere in that realm. Yeah. Uh, and it went through the iMessages. And app. they found a way in through Apple Music in 2020. So that's, <sighs> isn't that going. just, that's in full, installed by default. I believe so, Everyone's yeah. got that. Uh, so in 2017, there was a Canadian group of journalists called Citizen Lab, and they did a bunch of reports that exposed some of these abuses of the Pegasus software in Mexico. And when this was released, they showed that there were, you know, human rights lawyers, reporters, opposition politicians, um, even the parents of one of the student teachers who was dragged off a bus and murdered by the cartel were being watched by Pegasus software. That's unbelievable. Like your your child is murdered by the cartel and now you're being surveilled by the state. Bizarre. Anyway, Shalev and Omri, the founders of NSO in Israel, they refused to speak to any specific charges. And when this information came out, you know what they said? They said it was an anti-Semitic plot against them. Oh, come on. That's such a cop-out. It's <laughs> what people do. You know, they claim racism or anti-Semitism when they don't, when they're trying, like this, if it's real, sure. Yeah, call it out. But it's not. And the Israeli government backed them up and said, we see the fingerprints of anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic elements at Citizen Lab, which is just this group of journalists in in Toronto. And they're like, what? What What are you talking about? They tried to do a legal petition to stop them from selling the software. And it just went nowhere. The, the Israeli court threw it out. So, the whole point of them kind of sharing all these details is that this company seemed invincible. Like nothing could stop them. Uh, and it got to the point where 
there was the assassination of the the Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, which yeah. was a huge story. It, news of his murder uh, made headlines around the world in October of 2018. He was essentially lured to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in Turkey, where a team of 15 men killed him, sawed him into bits and disposed of the body. The CIA's official assessment was that the operation was authorised by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the NSO spyware was implicated. Uh, Pegasus had reportedly been used by the kingdom to track him and a number of people in his circle. So after this story broke, uh, Shalev, the CEO in Israel of NSO, said, I can tell you clearly we had nothing to do with this horrible murder. I can tell you 100% we've checked and we've got ways to check, he said. I can guarantee you our technology was not used on Jamal Khashoggi or his relatives. That's a lie, right? Claudio then tracks down his wife, his widow. She's got an old backup of her Android phone. She sends Claudio the file. It's infected with Pegasus. Pegasus was in her phone. Of course it was in his phone. If it's in her phone, it's in all the family members' phones. They're watching everyone. The Saudis are one of their biggest clients. And the message was made, like the SMS she got was made to look like it had come from her sister and it was inviting her to download a photo from that photo bucket service. And this was in April of 2018, before the murder. So, you know, they were watching her, they were watching the whole family, they were watching every move he made, they knew where he was, and that's just how this stuff goes. So, at the end of the year, the Forbidden Stories team, they've got all their data, they've conclusively proven what this company's doing, they've conclusively proven that, you know, human rights lawyers and activists and innocent journalists are being targeted by this. And they get all these newspapers from around the world to come to Paris, who who really have no idea of the full extent of this story. And they put them in a conference room and they put these tech guys in front of them to give a presentation. And you've got Le Monde there, Desite, the German paper. You've got the Washington Post, the Guardian, all these papers from Mexico, Belgian newspapers, papers from all around the world. And they're just blown away by this story. They cannot believe what's going on. And... The next day, Claudio discovers even more. Like, they're getting ready to print this story. They've got a plan. In a week's time, like, it's coming out. We're going to publish this all at the same time. Everyone's on board. We've got to keep it top secret until then. Claudio discovers that NSO might be onto them. Like, they know that they're being watched. And NSO has updated the Pegasus software. And what this new version is doing is trying to change the past what do you mean? So, the, all these ways that the Amnesty tech team, that Claudio and, and Dan have been find, analyzing and discovering that Pegasus was installed, it's all through trails in like Apple's P-list file and they use clever techniques where they block it from sending any info back to Apple. So, Apple never knows that it's been hacked. Mm-hmm. Apple never knows about these exploits. They're, they're now updating their software so that Pegasus goes in And it finds those old references to the old versions of Pegasus and starts deleting them. It just starts scrubbing the history. So any new phones they find that have been hacked with the new software, there's no... Well, they don't even know about the new software. I think they made one tiny mistake that allowed them to detect it. But there's now no way of knowing 
if it was infected in the past. Yep. So they just start scrubbing their tracks. Like they completely start covering it up. This is a company that's valued at $1.5 billion, And they've got 860 employees in, in Israel. And this whole Pegasus software was only 65% of their business. And they were actually trying to move away from it. And guess what the CEO wanted to go into, what their next thing was? News? Drones. Oh, drones. Yeah. Drone technology was their next big thing. So this idea of, yeah, you've got your phone being hacked, but you throw that in the bin, you might have some unseen drone hovering above you that's tracking you in real time anyway. Oh, it's just... And they're it's figuring terrifying. out ways to hack networks of drones so they can watch everything and then they sell that to China and like, my God. So finally, the team sends the letter to NSO, July the 11th, 2021. And it's basically this letter going, look, our research suggests that your technology has been used by multiple, multiple governments to systematically abuse the human rights of individuals whom those governments have no justifiable basis to place under surveillance. And they go through all their data and they basically tell them, you've got until July the 14th, 2021, 6 p.m. to reply, to you know, have your piece of the story. They do get back to them, but it's just flat-out denial. It's like, this is anti-Semitism. Stop attacking us. This is not true. You've been given false information. The statistics they have ready to publish in their story of the 50,000 phone numbers they had on their database, that list that, that got given to them by the source, they, they were able to verify the identities of more than 1,000 people from 50 countries in the world. The count included more than 600 politicians and government officials, three presidents, 10 prime ministers, and one king. There were 65 businessmen, 85 human rights activists or attorneys, and two Emirati princesses were being tracked. Craig Timberg's last-minute edition of an American reporter working in Saudi Arabia pushed the count of journalists to 192. And the company has no answer. And the journalists are like, That's, they've got no answer to this. Let's go. Let's publish it. Let's do this. So they drop it. Monday, July the 19th, all the publications around the world drop the, store, drop the story. Edward Snowden tweets, this is the story of the year. Stop what you're doing and read this. And immediately they get sued by the King of Morocco. Probably a good thing. <laughs> immediately they get all these letters from the King of Morocco, like Laurent and Sandrine. He's suing them. He's hiring his attorneys in France to sue them. The king of Morocco is going balls out to crush them. And the reason was the king of Morocco was fucked. Yeah, that's what I mean. You know why? Because he was the one that was hacking Macron. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, why? Well, it's some kind of political thing with French Moroccan politics I don't even want to get into. There was some kind of independence movement that had origins in France or something. I don't know. Because Morocco was like a French yeah, colony yeah. for a bunch of years. But um, imagine getting caught watching Mac <laughs> the French president. <laughs> Just deny it, bro. Don't sue. It just makes you look yeah, guilty. Yeah, it does, yeah. Just laugh it off. Or just say it was a prank. <laughs> say gotcha. It was a Moroccan prank. It's a prank. Just give him back all his dick pics. <laughs> 
But yeah, immediately NSO and the Israelis go to the old tried and true defense, um, forbidden stories and Amnesty International are tools of an anti-Semitic conspiracy. They actually ran with this. It's like... But this is like a form of social engineering, isn't it? Because, you know, something yeah. like that is horrible. Like, it's, it's horrible. And so that elicits an immediate response. People go, oh, no, we're not, we're not anti-Semitic. And so stories about this Pegasus software are still coming out today. And following this release, more stories came out, like a security lab investigation found that a British lawyer defending an Emirati princess was hacked by Pegasus. Court papers released in London revealed that the emir of Dubai had used Pegasus to spy on his estranged wife and her divorce attorney. A a Dublin-based NGO caught Israel using Pegasus to spy on six Palestinian human rights activists. Uh, Mexico uh, arrested a former Yuri Arnsbacher in November of 2021, and he was charged with using Pegasus to spy on journalists. So the Mexicans are actually trying to clean it up, trying to find people that, that it abused it um and they found all this corruption involved with it so is this company still going today i mean they're a yeah, huge company they're still today so i i saw this article on nine to five mac where the new ceo because the founders basically left uh his name was uh yaron shahat he said the nso group has terminated 10 customers over misuse so they're cleaning up their act and they said look we we made mistakes, but we act responsibly. And he declined to say whether all of NSO's clients were democracies, but said all the customers or countries that use our software uh, are what the uh, who the US would sell weapons to, basically. That's their standard. If the US sells weapons to them, well, they can use our software. Moral or righteous either. <laughs> I don't know how that's his out. <laughs> he should have just stuck with anti-Semitism. Probably would work better. <laughs> Um, and the U.S. government, like based Brandon, ended up um, blocking them, like blocking NSO from buying any U.S. tech. Okay, that's good. So they can't buy Dell, Intel, Cisco, or any Microsoft stuff. And uh, the company's pretty much lost most of their business. But the crazy thing with this, and this is what I'll finish with, by the middle of uh, last year, it was clear that this company was basically done. And then there was this huge vacuum of customers who still wanted software like yeah, this, right? People wanted the service. Pop up. So the United Arab Emirates created its own in-house spyware company to essentially do what NSO had done in the past, to fill this gap. Its name is Dark Matter. And guess they hire all these uh, engineers that used to work at the NSA. So now in like modern warfare, modern espionage, there's a new kind of mercenary and it's the cyber mercenary. And all these, you know... That saying that the geek shall inherit the earth is true. <laughs> yeah, like on the last Plus show, we described this this guy who stole this, or was it last week, we, all this, this guy that stole all the info from the NSA. He was like this, you know, obese, incel kind of loser. He's like a cyber mercenary. These well, are the that's co- right, he was smuggling the uh, cyber tools out in his fat folds and yeah. his USB stick. These are the kind of people that are being hired by these states to build their own weapon systems to watch their own citizens and also anyone talking shit about them from around the world. So you have these mercenaries going to work for Azerbaijan, the UAE, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, and there's no consequences. There's no consequences for these countries. There's no consequences for these companies. And I just want to leave you with the story of a CEO that they share. 
and he's a CEO of a private company. He specializes in cybersecurity. His company doesn't work in, in spyware. They don't traffic in it. But the market knows that they're capable of it. They have the expertise, the resources, the programmers for it. And he says he's been courted for years by the Middle Eastern kingdoms, we can say, that basically fly him on a private jet out to their capital cities. They, you know, lavish dinners and you know, amazing hotels and gifts. They offer him tens of millions of dollars to build something like Pegasus for them. And they know he can do it. And he says he's always said no. But he told the journalists, he told Laurent that things have changed after this Israeli company, NSO, has lost all its customers. The landscape has totally changed. The effect he described, Laurent said, was not what he expected. This guy said, if you want to understand what happens because of the Pegasus project, he said, for example, four months ago, Saudi Arabia came to us and offered us $200 million for a two-year project. Now, he says he turned them down again, but he's like, listen to me. It's $200 million. This is one deal for two years, and I get $200 million. Now you understand the economics of this industry of cyber surveillance. So I was just reading that going, I want to be a cyber surveillance mercenary. This sounds awesome. $200 million for a two-year gig. I like it that immediately you say to me today, we have to delete Telegram and our chats. <laughs> Dude, we're done. Our Telegram chat history. My God. It's over for us if that ever gets out. It's over. We'll be debanked. Families will leave us. We'll be like hordes with pitchforks and flames at our doorstep. We're going to delete that telegram history. You know, from what I was reading, though, as you, because I, I find this to be truly terrifying, and I was kind of already on edge when we did the last show, um, knowing that those tools are out there. But I'm like, ah, oh, it's the NSA. Like, it's it's terrible. But whatever. apparently, uh, Apple, you know, and look, I'm not a fan of any major corporation, but Apple has done a lot of work to try and counter uh, the vulnerabilities and the exploits inside their apps and inside their phones. Once this story broke, Apple sued them. Uh, Did they really? Their reasoning was you've damaged our brand, you're exploiting our customers, and you're you know you're attacking our software. And the irony was that Tim Cook went to Israel in 2015 and he gave this big speech about how Apple is Israel because so much of the cyber um, yeah the development is intellectual done. property in the world comes from Israelis because of that culture where yeah. they you know it's like you don't want to be a doctor you want to be in IT says grandma. Uh, but the irony of him setting up this. Um, I think they had this big research division in Israel in Tel Aviv down the road from where they build where they built this building the Apple built um, was the headquarters of NSO. It oh, was like literally round the corner. How embarrassing. It was just round the corner. So apparently if you keep your phone up to date you're now supposed to be immune to these exploits Bullshit. and Pegasus. Bullshit. Uh, and the other argument is that you have to re you should reboot your phone every day. I never do that. No, that's a really interesting one because they did reveal that as soon as you reboot, the soft the Pegasus loses its contact. Yeah, every day reboot your phone. So yeah, I've got that set on my phone to reboot once a day. Um, but the thing about exploits is, you know, you think like the way people think of it is, well, Apple's releasing an update. They're patching all this stuff. You know, they're fixing all these things and it's super secure. 
But they'll never know about the exploits that Until they don't know about. It. They just it, it, they rely on someone telling them, someone finding it. And these companies like NSO had very elaborate means to stop Apple from ever finding out about these exploits. And this was the same with NSA, the NSA and Microsoft. When that NSA dump occurred years ago with the hackers and all the NSA tools, the NSA had to go to Microsoft and go, uh, yeah, we've been using about 30 zero-day exploits on Windows for a while. And Microsoft had no idea about these holes. They had to go in and uh, do this emergency patch to basically block all these holes that had been used by the NSA for, a long for time. years and years and years. It would be the same with iOS. It would be the same with Android. If you think your phone is secure, you're just completely naive. And even with a hardened phone like Graphene, I, I still don't trust it. I, well, like, I was you looking, cannot be secure. The only way to be secure is to th- you do, a, do a Hillary, get a hammer out. <laughs> and, uh, uh, uh. Or, or if you're a Pfizer employee, smash an iPad <laughs> on a grinder date. That was hilarious. <laughs> Dude, he, if you haven't seen it, I'll link to it in the show notes. He panicked. Of course he? he panicked because he knows he's spilled the beans. I said this on Twitter. This guy has spilled the beans. Pfizer is doing terrible research. They call it directed evolution. He spilt the beans. He's been exposed. He's violated his uh, non-disclosure agreement. The guy is stuffed. Have a look at the video. Don't believe this crap that it's it's staged and made up. This is someone in true panic. Well, it's not staged and made up because you can tell by the, the totally lame way he tries to smash the iPad. <laughs> Like, well, he clearly doesn't know much about IT. He might know something about it's science. It's all emotion. Like, he's all floppy because of his <laughs> adrenaline. Like, he's got so much adrenaline going, he's all floppy. But he tries to smash it on the ground, and it, he just looks like a weird rag doll. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how... Is this real life? I love how you, they're trying to stop him from smashing their property and he's like, now you're hurting me. <laughs> and they grab his like, It's so ridiculous. Like, what a loser. He's like, they might kill me, but lock them in. Lock yeah. them in. What? Like, this is this is the insanity. And like, just have a look. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it's already, I think, 12 million views so far that have, have shown what's going on. But this demonstrates these large government, these are not government, but a government-associated organisations, these large organisations, they don't care what they're doing when it comes down to money. I cannot emphasise this enough. Like, if you think, oh, no, that's immoral, or, oh, no, they won't do they won't kill people. I'm sorry, they don't care. If there's enough money, they don't care. But even at an individual level, you've got these cybersecurity divisions for working for these states and these intelligence agencies that have access to these tools. Think of your average engineer, right? He's got his target, you know, he's watching the people he's meant to be watching. But, I mean, let's face it, IT guys, they want to take a break and kill some time. There's not something happening every second of the day. If they want to look at some random individual, they have the power to do that. And that's why what the Mexican guy said was so important. It's like, this is the cyber devil. The temptation is so strong. And the power you have over being in someone's life without them knowing, that temptation can't be resisted by a lot of people. So you'd have engineers that work, and it's not like a state-sanctioned targeting of some individual. They might install this software on like their ex-wife's phone or something. They might install it on someone they've got a beef with, someone that pissed them off that day. I've heard of stories that's happened in Australia with monitoring and that kind of stuff and intercepting a phone. I don't know exactly who had, but I've heard stories of that happening. 
So well, you'd like, be it'd be crazy if it didn't happen. Yeah. That's the the current human nature, isn't it? Yeah, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Uh, it's really scary stuff. So I'll link to the the book in the show notes. Uh, fresh one, Pegasus. Uh, how a spy in your pocket threatens the end of privacy, dignity, and democracy. There's tons of stories in there. I didn't touch on any of the stories because they go into detail on how the dissidents end up, like some of the people that were tracked by Pegasus and how they ended up in Saudi Arabia and Azerbaijan. And well, people died as a result of this. Yeah, I didn't mention any of the stories because they're pff, way more depressing this, than that story was. But that's the thing. Like They make the argument that they're saving lives. Like Publicly for their PR, they say, oh, we're saving lives. I, I read it just now, but you know, part of it is we're stopping terrorism and saving lives. No, you your software resulted in the deaths of people. What, you went to their website? Yeah. They've got your phone. No. They've got your phone. Yeah. Sorry, dude. You could give it to me now. I've got a hammer outside. <laughs> I need to smash it. Sorry. It's for the security. So I want a graphene phone now. So, yeah, just take it. Just smash it. Get rid of it. Huge stuff coming up in plus. Less cyber security yeah. stuff and more. More karmic deities escaping from the astral realm. We're going to cover some theosophical crazy stories. We're going to look at uh, spiritual zero-point zero energy Spirit chemistry, not spirit cooking, uh, and a whole range of different experiences and stories of people that had encounters with these odd uh, time slips, uh, psychedelia experiences, you know, just the really strange you know, entries into the astral realm. That's all coming up in our Plus Extension coming up very soon. If you want access, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. You know the drill. Sign up today. Nine bucks a month. Help support your favorite show. Do I need to say more? Look, it's all there. Just have a look at mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Get the max. Get the max. De-barnacle yourself today. (laughs) Shuck yourself from the hole. Go back through 16 years of content. Go all the way back to the start. Almost 16 years of content. It's, It's all there. Join max. Go all the way back from the start and then move forward. Sign up for a year. Be bold. Sign up for a year. Get your wallet out. Do it. I saw someone the other day mentioning that uh, a song that we had played a decade ago was stuck in their head. I think it was, uh, was it Sausages? Sausages. (laughs) Can you see my lovely sausages? Now it's back in my head. I had eradicated that from my memory. Can you see my lovely sausages? I remember the whole, the line, uh, Chippo Latas. They are tasty. Yum, yum, yum. Sausages. I can't find it now. Go back and go through that. We'll find it in Plus. The Sausages song coming up in Plus. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. Plus extension, great to have you with us. Please don't, Ben.